the first time either of us have worn glasses for the show. Yeah, it's a fitting. Well, wait, no, that's not true. I always wear glasses. But you wear. I know that you wear false lenses. I don't wear false lenses. You should see my lenses. I live in a fishbowl, man. It's it's like I literally can't see anything after I take my glasses off. Uh, I can't I can't read any of the things on the top of my screen there. Yeah, I'm, I'm blind. I'm blind as hell. I don't even see you anymore without these glasses. It's yeah. You're a blur. I mean, you are anyway. But <laughs> it's funny well, because we're both wearing Corona masks, also, oh, which we we don't need to be. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, we probably should be. Hold on, let me. I actually have one I can put on here. Oh, you so did? You can see I, me talking. I don't have mine on hand, actually. <laughs> but this is a radio show. We have to experience the theater of the mind. They'll believe anything we say. Yeah, well, we also have to make sure we're, we're visually communicating our, our language here as well, uh, especially now. I, I guess this is kind of interesting as well because we're doing our first show visually between each other. We've been very silent. This is the first time I've ever seen you before. Yeah, I, it's weird to see you. Uh, I mean, I know we met up in person before, but I I kept my eyes closed the entire time, so it's a little surreal seeing you for the first time over the internet like this. I think it's because you're wearing your false lenses that you couldn't <laughs> see anything through them. Uh, I think you need, like, prescription glasses and then... Yeah, you know, they didn't tell me until, you know, like uh, a year ago that I needed lenses in my glasses. So <laughs> even though I've been wearing them for more than like 15 years now, uh, now things that I can actually see. So this makes sense. No wonder I didn't do too well in high school. Like, you know, I just, <laughs> just thought it was stuck not being able to see things despite wearing glasses. You know, I remember the first time when I was a kid that I that I got glasses. You never really know until you have that perspective. I remember putting them on the first time. And suddenly I could see the leaves of trees. It wasn't an experience I thought anyone had. I was like, holy shit. I, I was telling my parents in the car, I'm like, I could see the trees. They all have individual leaves. And I didn't realize this. You know, mm-hmm. you know they're there, but you just you don't experience right. it. They just look like giant bushes. Yeah. You, know, you don't see the individuals. I'm, when I got glasses, it was a very unfortunate time. Because I got glasses at the same time. I got braces coming oh. right out of elementary school and into uh into middle school there so it's a very awkward time for me overall um and this story i'm talking about this was just this week <laughs> that you got glasses just for this lloyd podcast and i have a weird thing where my where i have one eye that's way less strong than the other one like it's almost half closed compared to the other one i can i can barely see out of one eye mm-hmm which is know. great. Uh, that's why we're movie critics. Cause <laughs> we're going the we, John Ford angle. Yes, we need to all get our uh, legendary Hollywood movie director eye patches, our, our Fritz Lang and Raoul Walsh eye patches. We discussed that <laughs> recently. Do you think that it's a predisposition to eye patch like Couture, or that um, all directors are secretly blind? Uh, it, it might be the latter, uh, just like sticking your eye in the the camera uh the viewfinder for so many uh years just weighs on your eye i know like another example i gave he didn't wear an eye patch but kurosawa um also ended up being very blind towards the end of his career I think, a, I think an eye patch with like a corona mask could be a good look yeah i'll have to try that out in animal crossing i'm sure they've got <laughs> a setup there <laughs> i got a monocle the other day in the animal uh, crossing I, d- I did too. I gave it to my very uh, stuffy, like professorly villager <laughs> named Beardo, and they took okay. it off today, which was sad. How do we keep bringing our beginning around to Animal Crossing? It's just because there's nothing going on, right? 
I think Animal Crossing came at just the right time where it gave people lives outside their own when they needed them. Yeah, we have a new video game podcast that we're supposed to shuffle all that into, but it keeps bleeding over here somehow. Um, that's okay. We don't listen to theirs, so we have to do it ourselves. This is this has been the Calvin Animal Crossing Minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's my new segment. I just came up with it myself. <laughs> it's a very original idea. Thank you. <laughs> um, there, there really haven't been like new movies, technically. Um, I think we only have one this week. Yeah, you have a... I know you have an old new movie to talk about, but not, like, a lot of new new. And then there's some TV stuff, right? There's, like, a, a documentary you watched as well? Yeah, I have the like, Apple TV uh, Beastie Boys doc. Right, which I saw Spike Jones directed, and he, yeah. you know, he famously started off his career by directing a lot of their interviews. He did, didn't he do Sabotage? I think he did Sabotage, right? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he did Sabotage. He definitely did Sabotage, and, um, what is it, like, check it out, some of those, uh, a lot of that Fish Islands Beastie Boys stuff is Spike Jones. Mm-hmm. He's, he's on the Criterion Collection. Um, their 100th release was Beastie Boys music videos. Right, the, the music Spike video Jones. anthology. Um, so they're well recognized even like in the cinema world. So it's not a weird thing for this Apple doc to uh, get a lot of attention from critics. Um, they've always been, kind of been critical favorites because they blend so many critical genres. Uh, you're getting jazz and funk and pop and reggae uh they they took off like where the clash started right like the clash was infusing reggae into new york punk rock and uh ad rock from the beastie boys was always like the punk guy and he kind of absorbed all that influence and put it into like a funkified thing with the uh, rick rubin and some producers that would become really big off the beastie boys Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they've always been a very uh, admirable source of the music scene, uh, certainly during their time. I think it's interesting. Uh, is it like a retrospective documentary? I, I would imagine with Spike Jones's history with them, it would be more along those lines and a kind of like, uh, I think those music documentaries are interesting, the ones that kind of cover the artist's career and such. Yeah, um, it's, I don't know what the right way to do it is, because of course you only have two of them left with Yach, uh, rest in peace, Yach. Uh, with Yach passing away, um, there it goes through kind of the the layers. <laughs> there are like three different segments called "This is the one that changed everything." So you have <laughs> you have like this is the song that changed everything. This is a song that really changed everything, and here's the album that changed everything. Uh, it's fun to to kind of chart their progressive growth. Um, there's a great line in it that's like a I'd rather you know I'd rather be a hypocrite than someone who stays the same. They kind of chart how much they regret songs like Girls and uh, some of the way they talked about women in their earlier songs. Um, both of the living members, uh, I forget their partners, but they're very married off to progressive partners. And um, they were never, you know, they were never trying to offend anyone, is my take. Uh, I, I think that was generally the feeling. Like, that's that's just how people were, like, 20, 30 years yeah. ago. <laughs> like, uh, um comedy was very like misogyny heavy and mm-hmm. it w- it was not in like entirely mean spirit uh, i don't know it's it's kind of hard to to say because obviously it is but also that was just how things were like you can't really reconcile it without coming across as a defender in any way but uh i think everyone regrets anything from like 20 <laughs> years ago or whatever <laughs> it's just going to happen they say they were initially trying to be parodies of like party boys and frat boys and then they became those guys so 
I think once I encountered it, they were already those guys. Um, I just remember when I was very young, my dad coming home from the concert and being like, they were throwing beer cans everywhere and they were partying. And I was like, well, I really thought the band was, you know, supposed to be making fun of that kind of stuff. I didn't think they were fully engaging in like the behavior they showed and talked about. All, that's the the risk with a parody. You often just end up falling into it and you know making all the same sins yourself. Are you? I guess you're slightly younger. So what's your experience like? When did you encounter Beastie Boys? Uh, my my most experience is is running around the room, jumping off walls, and yelling sabotage. <laughs> that's fair. That's good. Um, <laughs> that's I think that that's about as far as my extensive experience goes. <laughs> I think Sabotage is like their song of resistance. And yeah. It's like, I didn't even realize about Sabotage that it was just uh, Ad-Rock going into his studio and um, they laid down all the tracks for it individually. And I don't know how they came up with like a bigger scheme for the song, but he was just yelling at his record producer. <laughs> He's like, a, you know, you could hear me yelling and you can't do nothing. He's like yelling at him that uh, he can't turn off the mic and he can't produce his record. I didn't realize like that was the context of the recording for Sabotage. Um, so I did learn some stuff, even as a beastie head. Right, you found the doc uh, informative or satisfactory overall? Yeah, though, I like an on-stage doc, it, it feels like watching a TED Talk, so how do you rate it, right? right? It's mm-hmm. like a... It's not... <laughs> I'd rather watch all those music videos again from the Criterion. I'd, I don't know why... I, I don't know what I'm getting from it, since I read most of the book that was a few years ago it's kind of just uh streamlining that into a really tight stage show that's that's kind of always the tough thing with um docs uh music docs in particular is that you you have to uh, they have a tendency to go more for the uh just concert footage thing and, and showing that and that's not necessarily a fully satisfying and immersive experience unless you're going like full stop making sense which is kind of the benchmark for that <laughs> What would, what, would you sense, say your, what would you say your favorite music doc is? It is it is Stop Making Sense. I think mm-hmm. that is the ultimate concert footage, and it tells you the most about the songs without saying anything. Uh, it, well, it's kind of like the David Lynch idea. The um, You know, uh, making the movie is the talking. That is the story you're telling, and the music is the story. Um, I don't need the musician to get on stage and tell me about making the thing. I, I want them to show me the thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I have one uh, to recommend if anyone ever finds the time. I sat down and watched it a while ago. It's a uh, Peter Bogdanovich's four-hour documentary on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh. Super extensive. Lots of concert footage, but also lots of talking heads with every member of the band and really going deep into all their own personal uh, histories and time with the band. It was it was a riveting experience, I thought, and well worth the, the runtime there. So we recommend the Talking Heads and a documentary of Talking Heads. Yes, it's called uh, Running Down a Dream, for any of those who are interested. Um, Of course, there was Amy a few years ago, which I thought was just fantastic. I was always a a big fan of her material anyway, and it gets pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, So, was there anything else uh, new that you watched this week? Nope. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) That is the the state of the world right now. Uh, There's a few things I could talk about next week, but I'm embargoed on them. They're really Mm -hmm. good. So, So, uh... Tune in next week, I guess, for new things. <laughs> Tune in next week for content. Basically, that'll be the next uh, few months. 
Yeah, uh, well, it's just the struggle to find stuff to fill our, our contemporary section here at the beginning of the podcast uh, when there's nothing happening. And so uh, where we've been filling our weeks with, like, the, the the very few scraps of new things that are kind of eking out onto streaming platforms. Now we're, we're running a little dry while we're waiting for relevant things to pop up again. I was so bored I went and watched all the movies of the first Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> is that what what sparked that uh that piece that you wrote there uh just um nothing else to do i think you remember you probably remember at the beginning of the year i said that was my goal or my resolution anyway was to go back to the beginning and kind of find out about early cinema and do a little bit more digging so this has been an idea in my head for months so uh, i finally yeah. got it up on the site i found it interesting it's kind of relevant to the topic of today because uh you know we've been talking about our first uh Silent film, of course, but um, this was, uh, I think, kind of an unexpected uh, piece, even though you said you were going to do it, um, just because I know it's it's it definitely took a little bit more effort and research on your part, it, a lot more than I expected to come of it. You kind of just dropped it on me one day. You're like, oh, hey, look, here's this complete comprehensive discussion of the first Oscar ceremony. <laughs> As the great uh, Sherwood Anderson said, just don't talk about your work until it's ready, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about that and, uh, well, it was an idea I always had. So I started watching the films and started finding a way to piece them together and outline a thing for the site. Um, I think Wings was the main thing I really wanted to talk about, which I get to in the, in the article. Right. Well, because Wings is very famous for being the first film to win Best Picture. And besides the one iconic shot that's repeated in a lot of films, that's, that's really all anyone knows or remembers about Wings. Uh, which is interesting because of the other relevant and more enduring films that were at the Oscars that year, including uh, Charlie Chaplin film and the uh, Murnau uh, Sunrise, which is often hailed as one of the best films from the silent era. I think the, that's like the premise of the article, that Sunrise was really the film of the year. Or probably the general, but they didn't even include it. So. Right. Well, there, and there's so much, like if you consider as well, like even international stuff like Metropolis came out in that two-year time period they took contenders for but of course the oscars being american-centric especially in the beginning you know didn't even know about it or consider it yeah i i mean they had a german national the the only german that ever won the best actor but uh he was yeah emil jannings emil jannings he was uh he was in a film I, i actually saw that film that was the last film I saw in theaters, actually, because they okay. played it. They played it at the Hollywood as one of their silent ones. The Last Command. That was the last film I saw in a theater this year. <laughs> yeah, it it was very weird the first year because they were already doing kind of the bullshit they do now, which is uh, <laughs> not rewarding the right person and then giving them like a consolation prize. Like, uh, like Chaplin got uh, his award for producing, directing, writing, acting, et cetera, et cetera, inside the circus, but not an individual award for either of those parts. Yeah, they, they, I believe they initially nominated him for, like, all the things, but then they're like, no, you, you did a really great job doing all these things. Here, let's take all these away, and we'll give you this the Substitute Award instead. It counts, right? I, want, I wonder if they thought, well, you're the best at all these things. Maybe you outvoted everyone, but we can't just give one movie an award. So. Maybe, but Chaplin went on to not win a competitive Oscar until the 1970s i believe when he got one for scoring a film that he released in the 50s <laughs> oh god uh, that, that finally got a release again in america and so they're like ah it counts here here chaplain take this award you the, you've earned it <laughs> the next year gets even sketchier the second oscars they didn't even have nominations they just had a list of winners and 
uh, critics went back and kind of dug up what might have been the nominations. So Weird. it's a yeah. I I don't know if I'm going to continue with this series, but um, I definitely have an interest in tracing back and going through all those movies. Well, yeah, I think uh, film history, especially early film history, is endlessly fascinating. There's so much uh, mystique and glamour kind of surrounding it all, and the the little bits of uh, history and you know. Uh, record we do have still um you know we can kind of piece together this idea but it's all very like foggy and uh kind of like endlessly fascinating because the answers are never going to be fully uh unveiled always well there's a lot of articles that already do what i've done i think but uh there aren't any with with all the information together or the same analysis i did so yeah i'm happy to do something that's slightly new about a really old thing did you end up pulling from a lot of different sources i think that was the the most uh, fascinating thing to me is that you were very, very well-informed and researched on this piece. It was very well put together in that regard. I think I read articles on every film mentioned in it, and uh, and plenty. I read everything out there on the first Oscars that I could. So. Yeah, it was, it was very great. And again, very surprising that you just showed up with this incredibly well-researched piece <laughs> one day and, and hadn't talked about like the work you'd been doing on it necessarily. Like I'd seen like you'd logged or whatever, the few films that you know, we're all nominated for Best Picture, but I didn't know you'd done all this extensive reading as well with all of them. Yeah, um, easy work. Go read it on the site. <laughs> easy work. You make me look like a like a bum putting out a piece every two months or whatever. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just going to randomly drop a feature here. I'm sure that research isn't that hard. But <laughs> <laughs> no, your stuff's great, and you have an incredible one coming in a couple of days, which we'll discuss next week. Yeah, next week I look forward to talking a little bit more about that one. Uh, so, I think we're also seeing the death of the silent com or, or the co- studio comedy. Excuse studio me. silent. <laughs> I think we're uh, finally seeing the death of the silent comedy in 2020. <laughs> yeah, hundred years later, we're finally putting them to rest. <laughs> I'm starting to get the idea they might stop making these. <laughs> but no, I, I agree with you. Uh, comedies in general of. Uh, kind of been on a decline not only just in quantity but in quality for the past couple on i'll say 10 years i'll say 10 years right this moment yeah but um i think i think we could say 10 years ago is kind of like a peak for it that they were making over 100 million in box office um i remember well like when i was coming out of high school studio comedies was the thing right that right. uh, we had that very year like for a graduation year i had super bad and uh, knocked up. I mean, that was like the Apatow uh, kind of peak for for studio comedies. Right. Where where would you say things went after Apatow? I guess we have like the the Paul Feig kind of style comedies. Yeah. Which... I think it kind of dropped off pretty quickly after Apatow, and then I think we started getting like Twenty One Jump Streets and a lot of cross genre stuff like Hot Fuzz. Um... Right. Well, and that came out in the same time, like the Edgar Wright stuff, and a lot yeah. more like. Uh modern modern parody stuff which which i think both 21 jump street and hot fuzz fall into and those are really solid i think obviously with the the right stuff being particularly uh emblematic of his style and uh fascinating in their own right but i don't think anyone like like they're very singular i guess in that way like the the trend they they didn't necessarily start at similar trends like apatow films did i think what would you say was like i think funny people was kind of like the most emblematic thing of what Apatow or Sandler ever did. I, I've got to talk about... I've got to write a retrospective on funny people one day because I have, like, a huge appreciation for this comedy that I don't think people put enough stock in. Um, like, circa 2009, Apatow comes out and says, like, you know, being a comedian, doing the same thing over and over again, 
you might be pleasing an audience, but you're destroying yourself. Mm-hmm. That's that's one I don't have personal experience with, but I know lots of people have great great praise for it. It's like more outside of the the general Apatow ring, like not all your knocked ups and stuff. It's a little more uh, honest. Is that yeah, the word? It's, it's really depressing and honest. Yeah, uh, I could see why it didn't blow up, but but I feel like that was a statement of like the end of a thing more than it was. Uh, you know, it's not it's not a really funny movie, so I see why. People didn't go to funny people. What was uh, what was your favorite comedy from last year? Oh God, <laughs> I'm really on the spot for this, aren't I? Uh, mm-hmm. Geez. Well, looking back at last year, you start seeing like the the reverberations of like an end coming. You start seeing. I think it was called Good Boys, and uh, what was the other one? Um, there was one that was just like super bad. Uh, oh, oh, oh! What was it called? Uh, it's it's the girl version. It's the girl one. Booksmart. Book bad. Book book smart. Book bad. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Um yeah, we started seeing that where it was like a you know, we're kinda of reliving a nostalgia for these things now. Like they're not with us anymore. They're they're a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Uh I would say probably my my last favorite comedies of the last decade both came out in twenty sixteen. I was really a big fan of the nice guys and Swiss Army Man when they came out. Yeah. And uh but but since then I haven't been as impressed. And even then they're not as straight like studio comedies they're, they're definitely more genre-y uh you know like you've got the the buddy cop kind of thing with nice guys and the bizarre totally off-kilter stuff with swiss army man that doesn't appeal to everybody okay so uh i've looked at my letterbox okay. i have at least a couple now <laughs> um uh dolomite is my name is probably the funniest movie i saw last year that, make, that makes sense it is again though it's not as traditional like a co- studio comedy like we're talking yeah, about it's here Netflix. it's Netflix. It, well, it's it's like a hybrid thing as well because it's very biopic as well. It's it's telling the story of Rudy Ray Moore and such, and and I guess that's also indicative of it is that you're. I mean, not only is it not very modern, but it's also you know you're pulling Eddie Murphy, you know, like this old comic legend. You know, he's not very contemporary necessarily, mm-hmm. and it's about a character from from other movies from the 1970s. Uh, specifically so i think if that's the film you found funniest of last year then i think that that really shows the uh <clears throat> the lesser quality of modern comedies and uh, i think currently. the most like studio comedy of last year which was really good and completely ignored was long shot <laughs> mm-hmm. i thought theron and rogan kind of did the thing that apatow always did and i think they did it extremely well and nobody went and saw it at all yeah, and I guess that's the bigger problem here is to the death of the studio comedy is less the the quality and the more the lack of interest. People just aren't drawn to these anymore. Do you think it's because the uh, that we have moved away from the Apatow style of comedy that seems to still be kind of hammered away at here, and we're waiting for the next you know kind of wave of uh, comedy style to come through, or what do you think? I think that's kind of what's triggering it is that. Um... Recently, every comedy has ducked out of the release schedule. They've they've gone. Um, what was it? Uh, the King of Staten Island is the new Apatow. That's the Pete Davidson movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the last one that was going to get a theatrical release. That's not like a a comedy action star vehicle, like a Ryan Reynolds or The Rock thing. So, uh, I think we're definitely at the tail end of that genre. I think they're still coming out. They'll just come out on digital. That's okay. Yeah, that might be the case for films in general i mean we, we still keep talking about that uh as this pandemic doesn't hasn't let up yet but what uh you just showed me an article today that said that 
Trolls World Tour made more than the original movie just on its digital release. Uh, it made, yeah, it made a lot more than the original movie did in five months within three weeks on digital. So, yeah. yeah, that is... Uh, That's damning. Yeah, but who's to say if that'll transfer to other films as well, again, because it is a, a more child-approaching uh, one, and especially because a lot of children are home right now, and like the, the adults are maybe looking to find new entertainment for them, and that might be... That might have been the best option at the time. The the same might not transfer to say you know of course like the new Wonder Woman movie or James Bond certainly. I think like the problems multi sided that we have the the coronavirus right now and we have um, it's the first one to do it too. There's going to be an intrigue there. Trolls was always going to do well in theater. The sequel is always going to outperform the first one. Um, you think it? You think it would? You don't think there'd oh, be yeah. diminishing returns on that? Yeah, though I'm I'm really surprised. It doesn't need like the big song. Apparently, it doesn't need the one that's going to be played in the car with your kids because I don't think it has one of those. Hmm. Well, I mean, certainly it didn't resonate with your daughter as much, right? Based on your review, <laughs> she doesn't like rock and roll now. The more I think about it, it's kind of fucked up because the <laughs> the rock and the classical trolls are really done dirty. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, by the end of the film, they get all the trolls to come together and make peace with each other and like form into their own village. But there are no classical trolls represented, so I guess they left out like good music and uh, <laughs> only bad music trolls unite. Which is how the internet works, too, I realize. It's all bad <laughs> music trolls. Why, why couldn't the movie have been about that instead? I'm waiting for the internet trolls movie to hit. <laughs> I think it's like somewhat, somewhat aware that that's the joke, at least. So there are like some gags in it where uh, it's like, yeah, but you're just trolls, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. it, it feels like it's somewhat aware on that on that wordplay and that it is about like rock music criticism and optimism to an extent so the more I, I think I, about it there's a reading there but yeah I guess if if you consider that the trolls are really anti-rock then it really is uh, indicative of their uh, 80s origins isn't it <laughs> that they think rock is the worst in the devil's music and stuff <laughs> yeah I mean I thought about the trolls how it could be good for her like they're I guess they're probably old like Scandinavian toys and they were Probably a lot uglier originally. And, yeah. Uh, what, what happened uh, to ugly toys? I want ugly cartoons back and stuff. Why is everything yeah. got to be pretty? Yeah, I wish they weren't like shined over it's, in this new graphics. I wish they looked really grotesque. It's it's sending out a bad message to all the young girls of the world and your daughter that apparently even trolls are beautiful creatures. <laughs> That's going to ruin her self-image ten years from now. <laughs> She'd, she'd feel much better if she self-identified with a ugly stout doll, I think. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. So, uh, are there any comedies you're looking forward to coming out on, on VOD, you think, that'll come this year? If anything comes this year? No. No? <laughs> Nothing? A, Nothing's coming out? I'm looking forward to Lovebirds, which I'll have a review for in a few weeks. Uh, I The big sick really affected me, of course, because I went into a coma and whatnot, and and I've always loved stand-up comedy, so it, it marked two things off there. That, that might be a good podcast to cover in the future, maybe next week uh, or something. The Big cause... Sick? Yeah, yeah, Big Sick. Uh, I watched it once. I enjoyed it a lot because I like uh, Kamel a great bit. It's very funny. Yeah. I, enjoyed, I enjoyed Silicon Valley a lot when that was on. How do you feel about Stuber? Uh, <laughs> I thought you. I thought you'd relate to that as well. Like it, it's a good come off from from the big sick there. Like like it doesn't continue that relatability for you being an Uber driver and stuff. 
<laughs> it's true. He covered by two things, going through a coma, and then I became an Uber driver. <laughs> you, you identify with Kumail quite a bit, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's really telling my life story, the American dream. I can't wait for the next chapter. You've seen all those promo pics for him. He's super ripped for, I think it's like that Marvel show or whatever he's doing. Yeah. That's I that's think... your next step, right? You're going to be like super jacked uh, by this time next year. Maybe next year he'll gain a lot of uh, sympathy weight and then be, um, <laughs> maybe his next role will be he becomes an online reviewer of bad comedy movies. I, I can't wait to see that turn for him. He's going to be the, the Robert De Niro of movie comedians, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't oh, know. I'm only getting sympathy weight for my review, too. Um, <laughs> I think I've already got most of it on, so I think it should be set for next year. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm, I'm fine with the big six. Should we Should we lock that in next week? Uh, sure, here. I guess we'll announce it on the pod here. And, and it's good because we haven't gotten to an Amazon streaming film yet, which they have yeah. lots of stuff. And that one's particularly an Amazon original. And uh, I'll watch that again. I'll talk about it. I'd say it's my favorite of the Amazon originals, so I'm happy to do that. I, I think I, I mentioned Swiss Army Man before. Was that one Amazon original? I think it was. I, I don't know. It's at that, least picked that up. That or Patterson. I like Patterson a lot, too. Um, What do we? What are we covering today? We're covering comedies. Remember, this, this is kind of the tie-in here, is that the studio comedy may be dead, but we're recycling back around to silent comedies, which are only recently dead, according to Calvin. For some reason, I have glasses on it. I don't think I need those anymore. You don't need glasses anymore? Are oh, that's lens- our gag. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. You're- we're covering <laughs> the glasses guy. Yes. Uh, Harold Lloyd, the, the silent comedian that is often overlooked in favor of the more famous contemporaries, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, of course. Yeah. Glasses Lloyd, they call them. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm the only person that's called them that, <laughs> to be fair. The first time in a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, someone. It's surprising it took that long for someone to be that clever, but it, you know, it comes out eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think we we both have a very great shared love here of Harold Lloyd. Like this is this is the first silent film we're covering on the podcast, which is uh, incredible. I guess because I have I have to push Calvin to watch more silent films because he wants talking and music and all sorts of audio stuff in his movies. I don't know why. Well, I should say before we begin that most of my interest in movies are audiovisual, but if there's synchronized sound, I think I could really buy into a lot of silent films. Well, it's it's kind of a misnomer still. I don't know if people still know don't believe this or not, but silent films aren't actually silent, and they never That's were. True. They always had a company scores. As I've talked about plenty of times before here now, my favorite movie theater does live scores uh, You know, for silent films every month. Not right now, obviously, but... Uh, and the first one I saw uh, at the theater there uh, was a Harold Lloyd film on his birthday just a little over a year ago. It was his first feature uh, called Grandma's Boy. Um, that's the uh, Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen. No, no, Grandma's Boy is also Wait, the name. No, it, no it's, he's like it's, a game tester and they go and smoke a lot of weed. That... You, <laughs> I mean, you could have made the joke about the Adam Sandler film called Grandma's Boy. Oh, is that what it was? It was Adam Sandler? Yeah, there's an Adam Sandler film. Let's restart this thing. (laughs) Obviously, I've not seen that Grandma's Boy, but what's this original one that inspired that movie? I don't know if it inspired that movie. It certainly stole the name, but uh, it's 
it's kind of like the basic formula for a Harold Lloyd film, where it's he's kind of this underdog character trying to win the girl from this bigger kind of bully. He's very youthful and spirited. Um, the the film itself has faded from my memory a lot more than a lot of his other features, uh, including this one that we're talking about this week. But it was good. I had a fun time in the theater with it. And, of course, it inspired me to continue to watch films, uh, silent films in the theater. And I've taken every opportunity I've had to go there because uh, – there are very, very few places in the country where you can watch silent films with live scores in the theater. I can't remember if I've ever seen one in a theater. You'll, have, not. To, you'll have to come down. I'm, I'm waiting. Once the, the Hollywood opens up again, I'm going to drag you down here and take you to one. I know they're playing. They said they were going to do, I think, the general at some point this year. Oh, but let's do that when they reopen. When, whenever great. they reopen. Yeah, they're doing a Buster Keaton film for sure, they said. And I'm very excited for that because, of course, I love Buster well, Keaton as well. We could podcast that in person when I go Oh, to... yeah. I would love to do that. But in the meantime, we're starting with, with Harold Lloyd, the forgotten of the, the three major silent comics from his time, who actually made, I believe he made more features in the time period during the 1920s than either Keaton or Lloyd did. And for that, he was uh, somewhat more uh, popular or profitable than either of the two. Even altogether, I believe he's made more than both of them combined, which is pretty insane. Right, because well, he had a long stint uh, before feature days doing shorts and doing all sorts of <laughs> films at Pathé uh, and different characters. Uh, before he figured out the glasses persona that's now so iconic, he did kind of a riff on the, the Tramp character. He did uh, the same thing with the bowler hat and the cane and stuff. Uh, it just wasn't as successful, of course, and it was just basically a ripoff of Chaplin's thing. So, But eventually he found you know his unique persona in the glasses character. And he was very, very successful with that. And it's not just that he's a like a lesser or an in-between of Keaton and Chaplin. He really is unique and special in his own right and just as good as uh, I think we found in our discussion prior to the show here. You've watched all his movies, I believe, or most of the main features, right, that aren't talkies. So. Yeah, I've, I've even watched a good number of his talkies, which there's only a handful of before he, you know, turned into straw hat and stuff but there's far too many shorts uh and also a lot which don't you know you know which aren't preserved anymore which i have not seen but i did last year i did a big binge of all of the uh features from the main three silent comics which was a huge joy to do and i found a wonderful bunch of classics from all of them not just the ones you see lauded here or like in the criterion collection or whatnot but also you know ones that uh have not yet been reappraised and appreciated. Stuff like uh, Dr. Jack and uh, For Heaven's Sake, which are both uh, very dear. I love very much. I, um, Because you've watched so much, I had to go and watch the um, the third Genius documentary mm-hmm. uh, it was, because was I a, wanted to catch up. That was a documentary made in the 90s, I believe, that comes on the, the disc, I believe, for this film. If you get it Safety for, Last for Disc, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's on that disc. Yeah. Um, it's also available in two parts on the YouTube, so I, I just found it there, so I watched it there, unfortunately. Um, you can probably watch this film on YouTube as well. A lot of silent films are preserved on YouTube, especially because now they've lapsed for copyright and such, which is wonderful for all of us who want to go out and see them. But the best restorations you'll find through uh, restoration and streaming channels, and particularly this one on the Criterion channel. They have they have a great, fantastic release of Safety Last that I have sitting on my shelf as well. The great thing about the doc, too, is it it comes right before all the players in it die. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's early 90s, and pretty much everyone in there is gone now. So it's kind of their final voice on the matter, too. So you get a lot of uh, interest and a lot of uh, 
interesting Hal Roach clips, uh, mm-hmm. and you get uh, Lloyd um, Harold Glasses himself talking up his movies. Uh, yeah, I was always a I was really interested in uh, Hal Roach's quote that uh, Harold Glasses was not a comedian, but he is the finest actor to play a comedian. <laughs> what do you think of that? It's a funny quote. Uh, I I don't know if I think it's true because he's certainly very comedically talented, but it's it's a funny quip uh, about his character as a person. I, I think like from Roach's perspective, what he saw was that Lloyd was he he was the hardest working guy of the three, and that he really built up like a repertoire of work work where he was understanding how to become a comedian. So, uh, I mean, eventually he acted so hard that he just became the thing. Yeah. Uh... And that's another thing to say as well. Like, unlike uh, Chaplin or Lo- or Keaton, uh, Lloyd wasn't actually like the physical director of his films. He, he right. had a lot of collaborators, but he was definitely the visionary genius of it. And he sought through. He, like, his name wasn't the you know front and center of the producer or anything, but he was the orchestrator of his work, and he was just the preserver of it too. He kept the rights to all of his work, and you know he had all of the stuff well preserved the reason we have all of his films so beautifully restored still is because he did such a fantastic job keeping them and uh you know taking care of them uh, and the same cannot be said necessarily of uh, uh keaton's work keaton unfortunately did not retain the rights to all of his work and so now it's all kind of scattered to the winds and some of it's not in yeah. very good condition that's really too bad um but a lot of it is well preserved and there's plenty of good uh prints of most all of his uh, best works they say a lot in the documentary how he was always directing his directors. Like, mm-hmm. even when he was just the actor in the project, he would stay in charge of the production. And he would have more ideas than the directors would about gags and whatnot. Yeah, he he might as well have been the director. Um, you know, of course, not taking away from the credit of people like Fred C. Neumeyer and such who directed this film. But, um, you know, he, did, he was certainly the visionary. I think it's... Uh, easy to say on all of his projects i don't even really know newmeyer do you know like what else he's done um you know he was just a close collaborator uh collaborator with lloyd from from what i know i don't hear too much about him you don't hear about him in like the directorial sense too much um you know and directors were kind of different in those days and silent films especially comedies were made uh differently than they are you know kind of now like a lot of times they didn't have a script in this particular uh film safety last year they had the idea for the ending the big centerpiece uh climax of climbing you know scaling the building there and then they worked backwards to create a plot that built up to that which is really uh incredible because of how cohesive the film is in general a lot of silent comedies uh are just more like gag 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 and you, yeah. know, you have a very loose thread of uh plot holding it all together but safety last really i think it continually builds to that climax it's not just the big centerpiece uh, that's what I've liked so far about his work. So it feels like there's like a great um, connective tissue with like the themes of the movie and the gags that he's doing. Like all the gags in this are baked into his story in some sense. Like a, we could say there's like 15 minutes or so of the the longest gag I've ever seen in a comedy, but it has so many parts with individual gags within itself. Yeah, and it is really just like a laugh fest, one right after another. It's such a well-constructed comedy that there's never like a, a moment or it lets up and it stops building to a new joke or anything. It's it's really just one right after another. And uh, I think all of them really still land. I, I can't think of a single joke where in Safety Last where I'm not laughing at it or it's not really well done. And it starts off just on a really great strong note, I know. Yeah, 
it feels like it is connected to a story and it, it has a theme it has a story is i think one of the main differences yeah and i can't say like the same for uh you know i love buster keaton in equal measures and you know i did that piece uh on the site which you can go back and view on sherlock jr i think it's one of the the masterful silent films and greatest comedies ever but his his oeuvre is not always consistent in story uh he was he was way more about the gags and then kind of more loosely strung them together uh whereas lloyd i think he especially in terms of romance plots which i don't uh, I feel he was strongest in that compared to Champlin mm-hmm. or Keaton is that well, especially because of just the relationship he had with his leading actresses in this film in particular um, you know he was working with Mildred Davis who immediately after the film became his wife and stopped working in movies and they they do have a real connection there in a chemistry and I thought that I, I forget who's the gal in the kid brother uh, the kid brother is. Uh, She's really her. great. She um, is, and I and actually I like her more as an actress in his films than um, any of the other uh, leading ladies he had. Her name is uh, Jobiana Ralston. Uh, it's a little harder to pronounce, but she's really <laughs> fantastic. Uh, you know, and she's in a good number of Lloyd's films after that. All of his silent ones, like For Heaven's Sake and The Freshman, and. Uh, why worry as well, which I watched again recently. And I, I had just watched uh, the kid brother as my prep too, because I, well, I wanted to watch the, I wanted to watch a couple of his good movies, right, and wanted to see what else he had. Uh, the kid brother is a the one I would also immediately recommend. I'm glad you enjoyed that one in a almost equal measure because it is it's really a fantastic um, piece from him as well and it has a more uh, emotional oomph to it i think of all of his films i think the romance plot is strongest there of any and it's got a really great climax on the, the ship as well which i think is a lot of fun yeah i i distracted myself by changing my zoom background <laughs> to the <Yes>. safety list <laughs> it's good background it's an iconic yeah. iconic image of course it's the lloyd hanging from i want to be clock. able to see though so i need to sit like to the other side so you can see lloyd <laughs> hanging off the clock <laughs> what I love there, I love this, this picture, it's going to be, I guess, hard to communicate, but I want to get here anyway, was that uh, Lloyd has such an ex- expressive face in, in all of his performances. He was very uh, energetic, but also just uh, super, um, he, he could really communicate the, the thrill of things, like the, the, the tension, the scares, but also the comedy of it all. He was just, he had a very malleable face, which was, uh, it's always wonderful to see. I think it really communicates his character throughout his films. Unlike, you know, like, and you got Keaton on the opposite end, who's just like complete deadpan all the way through. And that's his <laughs> right. style. There are just, that's polar more my style there. of comedy, I think. Although I'm trying to be expressive since we're doing voice chat. Otherwise yeah. <laughs> I look like this every time you talk. <laughs> you look like Keaton. Um, but it, and it is the hard thing still. Like it's hard to sit here and talk about Lloyd just uh, without wanting to compare to the other comedians because they're so pervasive. Like I feel like you have to keep constantly making an argument for why Lloyd is just as great, if not better, in some respects than them. It, and you really can't choose. I think it's unfair to make anyone choose between Chaplin, Keaton, or Lloyd. And and the reason we want to promote him here is just because he is still somehow under-recognized, maybe not as much in, you know, our bigger film communities like this, but certainly in the public eye. People know Chaplin without ever seeing one of his films, and Keaton is a name that's thrown around a lot, but Lloyd is it's all but forgotten in the public consciousness. I see that that long ago we were looking at Lloyd as the most popular, too. Like, if you ask someone from the 20s, they would say, well, obviously you choose safety last out of this bunch of films, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, 
the feeling today is like a well those are guys that really went against their time like keaton was like the perpetual outsider while a chaplain you know he was he was very adverse to innovation and i mean you have an excellent article about that with yeah. modern times but uh uh, when time moves on, it, it kind of leaves those people behind. Well, he was a trailblazer uh, in his own right there, you know, and he helped found United Artists, you know, which was yeah. a major studio for a long time. He did that with Douglas Fairbanks and D.W. Griffith and uh, Mary Pickford. But, um, but uh, you know... Lloyd was really, like, integral, like, within his moment. And, I mean, it's not surprising to me that he'd be left behind out of the three. Yeah, uh, I guess because he doesn't... He intentionally uh, blends in with the crowd a little more. Like, his yeah. persona relates to... And everyone always says that he's more of, like, an everyman, which is very true of his character and his style of comedy, whereas the the tramp of Charlie Chaplin is very, you know, emblematic and, and singular, and Keaton is such a maverick uh, and, you know, just a acrobat of his own right. Like, he's this uh, unparalleled, you know, physical comedy genius. And not to say that Lloyd isn't, but he's definitely more in the middle between them while still reaching at both ends there. Like, he has that emotional pathos in the romance plots that Chaplin achieves so much. But he's also just as physical a comedian and, you know, uh, trying as uh, Keaton is. And you can see that, especially, I think, Safety Last is the most emblematic picture of that, of course, with the giant climax. But it was not the first time nor the last that he did these kind of thrill pictures like this he did another uh comic short just before this one called never weaken which was Mm -hmm. really great and and basically a precursor to the thrill climax of safety last well he had these thrill movies which were i I think that's an interesting thing for uh, people who may be going to the theater for some of their first times to uh, really experience someone hanging off a building and the way it looks here I'm still sweating it out. I don't. I don't like heights whatsoever. Yeah, it's actually it's really incredible how they did it because uh, you know they're really that high up. Those are those are not projections. Those are real backgrounds, real buildings you're seeing there. Uh, but um, the way they did it is a little more camera trickery stuff. I actually, I have a there's a there's a great doc that comes with the Criterion disc as well, and I have a GIF from it. I'm gonna send to you so that you can see as well. But basically, uh, I will describe as I'm sending it to you here, is that they had a facade of a building they put on top of another building. It's about two stories worth of facade that they could climb. But it was only... That means that the fall there onto the other building was not nearly as uh, high. You know, they had a mattress underneath that he could fall to in case of, uh, you know, uh, losing grip or whatever, which was probably very common because... uh, in 1919, uh, Lloyd lost his the his thumb and index finger on his right hand when holding a, a prop bomb that they thought wasn't real, and it ended up turning real, and it blew off his fingers. And so in all his films from then on, you can see, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to tell, but he has a prosthetic thumb and finger inside of a glove that's like skin tight on his hand. And it looks seamless, like you have to really look for it to find that. I thought even the way that he described blowing it off was really funny. <laughs> Just the idea of the prop bomb and that he was going to hold it to show someone for a for a gag. Uh, I, uh, but he never seemed to really get down about it, which uh, I admire about him a lot more after the doc that he was very unemotional and uh, just one of the hardest working guys. So I think there's a lot to respect there. Well, yeah, and it's incredible because he is actually climbing that building. I mean, in the wide shots, uh, it's not him. They have, um, actually, the idea came from, it's uh, Bill Struther, 
who is he plays Bill in the film the buddy that Harold yeah. Lloyd has and he was an actual like stunt climber like the, the he got the inspiration for safety last from him seeing him be a human fly and climb the side of the building there uh, and so that was kind of the idea for it and he did those in the wide shots for the film as well uh, and which really uh, helps build on to the tension of it and makes it feel that much more you know perilous and uh, but all in the close-ups and stuff, of course, it is Lloyd, and he's really scaling a building. It's about two stories, but uh, you can see throughout the film in that climax part that the background changes because they had to move from buildings to buildings across downtown Los Angeles to uh, different heights to get the scales yeah. for it. But it's all real. It's all the actual downtown area there, and you can see all the cars and the people and stuff. Uh, and it's just it's a very smart trick by creating that facade on top of a shorter building. I to... think it's just very smart that he was uh, standing below and watching him, and he realized that um, just through a matter of perspective, it should work on the screen the same way. Yeah, and it and it looks great. And again, it's it's done masterfully because he is. You can see the struggle and the performance to climb, and all the different gags they think to throw at him while he's climbing and it's essentially the same idea like you're balancing the tension of whether he'll fall with the comedy of what's causing him to potentially fall but it's done in so many different variations in creative ways that it never becomes stale shockingly so it's just really wonderful fantastic sequence and it's no wonder why it's become so iconic that image of the him hanging off the clock that's of course been parodied and uh, homage to in so many great films from back to the future to hugo to jackie chan movies Sure. Um, I think, uh, well, my favorite thing about it has always been the opening shot of Safety Last. Yeah, and there's it's a great uh, visual gag, of course, with, uh, um, where it opens on, he's, uh, you know, he's behind these bars, and you see this noose hanging in the background, and it looks like he's about to be, <laughs> he's about to yeah. go be hung for crimes, and it turns out he's just at a train station, uh, <laughs> the bars there are the gate separating, and the the noose is like the male hook that they, they use when yeah, the trains go right. by. <laughs> great. It's a great visual setup, and it's like a subversion of expectations there. And it sets the tone really strongly for the film. I saw that he pulled it from Keaton's Cop, so I went and watched just the start of that, where he's at like a mansion, and he's like sitting in front of the gates holding on, and mm-hmm. then suddenly like it pans back, and you see it's like in a really elaborate gate, and he's probably a rich guy and not a prisoner. Right. He's and- like around that society, at least. <laughs> it's it's a funny bit and it's funny to see how the the comics kind of influenced and went back and forth between each other uh you know and so they all pick up and and play off of that same style uh but i agree with you in the idea that that uh, lloyd took it to the next level there with the noose bit and everything and it ended up being the perfect opening for this film yeah um i think that uh well from my reading that keaton and lloyd especially uh appreciated each other and were influencing uh, both of each other's works. Uh, even Keaton was pulling from Lloyd occasionally. Yeah, well, of course, they were both very physical comics. Uh, you know, Lloyd didn't stop with Stunts Here, just with Safety Last. There's a great uh, chase sequence. It's like a 20-minute chase sequence uh, at the end of Girl Shy, where he's racing uh, these uh, <clears throat> one of the cars. Uh, he, he like switches from cars to like a horse-drawn carriage and stuff. He's trying to get to this uh, wedding to stop the ceremony so he can run off the girl, which was, of course, then used as the ending for The Graduate as well. So there's a big uh, homage there. And you can see stuff like that, where Lloyd obviously uh, still does have an influence on, on modern films. He's just not as recognized or credited, I think, as people like Keaton or Chaplin are. 
It is funny that the graduates always credit back to Lloyd, but it's really based off like the Keaton bit as well. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, because because Keaton was a huge chase person as well. Again, they they share a lot. Keaton and Lloyd share a lot of uh, the same sensibilities in comedy, but also again they're very different because uh, Lloyd is of course a lot more emotional and expressive than than Keaton is, and this is a a fantastic uh, representation of that. Uh, you know, some of my best uh, my favorite bits from the film involve just. Uh, Lloyd's reaction to things or expressions. I, I love the bit where he's in the department store and he's he's climbing behind the uh, <laughs> uh, like the, the the cart or whatever, trying to hide from his boss. And then the cart like veers off, and he's still just doing like the weird frog walk thing. And then like the it, he does it for a while too. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a pretty extended bit, and and so the manager is like following him, like waiting to bust him. <laughs> but it's at some point Keaton ob- or, or Lloyd obviously notices him, and then once he gets near the elevator, he like jumps up and spooks him into the elevator which then goes off without him and he kind of walks off like you know uh you know shaking his hands like he's done with it and stuff <laughs> i think Great. The, the film's really good at setting up tension between characters too which i think really comes through within that office scene where he invites the girl in and um he starts calling in people from different yeah. offices. Well, because there's the misunderstanding that he's uh, the manager of the firm. Like, he's been stringing his girl along from yeah. a distance that he's super successful when he's really, like, uh, you know, just barely make money. They have to sell off all of their stuff to make rent and such. But, like, once she comes to visit him un- unexpectedly, uh, he's got a feign. Like, he's the manager of the firm and stuff. And so it's this it's funny comedy of errors where he's know barking at different people and i love that bit as well it's i don't know if you, you caught that one where like he he drops like a dollar bill in the trash bin <laughs> yeah. and tells the guy to you know take care of this already and then you know he then drops he another piece of paper <laughs> and he and he swipes it back from him. that's also kind of a chaplain-esque kind of joke the kind of cheekiness of the the tramp you see that i like how well. i like how set up everything is like in a chaplain film i don't always feel like that continuation of character where it's like a uh, well, Lloyd has to spend all his money on this thing, so there's like a plot device where he is poor, and there is like and there is like a background story going on within his life where yeah, uh, you know he looks at the good eats and he has to tighten his belt. You you understand what the times are like. There, there's that great shot where he has to he he's pawning his stuff or he, he's pawning his stuff or buying uh, whatever it is for the girl, and like so you see the food that he's like uh, admiring in the the corner yeah. the the shop across the street and every every like coin he hands over like another piece of it disappears there goes the <laughs> coffee there goes the sandwich and it's a really great visual representation of what's going on there and he has a couple of things like that i think there's a similar one in the kid brother is it the kid brother that has the castle that explodes yeah, yeah, I think so. yeah. So it, it has like this castle that explodes when his like fantasy of being with the girl is gone, and then at the end it comes all back together when everything's great. Yeah, um, I I like that visual representation. I like that he uses a lot of handwritten notes when he needs to to purvey like other information that shouldn't be on a title card. That's that's the other thing as well is that not only through the title cards but in notes and character exchanges, Lloyd manages to get away with comedic dialogue and words on the screen where. Chaplin and Keaton not only avoided that entirely, you know, they they famously had a contest to see who could have the least title cards <laughs> in a 
uh, in a film, but Lloyd well, doesn't do- have any interest in that. He, he well, wants it. He does it. Comedy. They're important. He does it successfully and not like over abundantly too. He does it when he needs to, and he can make dialogue be really, really funny. And I think that's because he just had a really great team of people working on the films in particular for the, uh, the inner titles, which he has hilarious inner titles more than anyone else. Uh, uh, HM Walker was his main title writer. Uh, and they're so so funny in all of his films. There was one, I believe, in The Kid Brother that really caught you off guard. I, yeah, it was uh, Hank Cooper, Harold's sworn enemy. Ever since Harold sold him a dozen doorknobs for fresh eggs in the dark, that's just so fun. <laughs> that's just, so fucking funny. Who thought of that? There's just really funny ones, and there's a great funny ones in here. Uh, there, what there was one in Safe Glass where it's like he wrote to the girl only on specific days of the week: Sunday, <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. Mm-hmm. Specifically was, every day. Right. It, and so there's lots of those throughout his films. Uh, I think he just does such a terrific job with, with title cards and words on the screen, which is so difficult to do with silent films and really should be avoided most of the time. But <laughs> he true. he makes a case for how you can make it work. And that's another thing. It's a, it's a lost art form somewhat that even the title cards could be a funny and, uh, you know, important part of your film. It's that, important, too, that this wouldn't work if they were spoken out loud. Uh, I think they have to be uh, inner titles. Or they, they're not going to work in, it's the, true. in the context. If you watch any of Lloyd's or, or Keen's or whoever's immediate sound films, like right at the, the cusp there, uh, they, they just don't work the same. And part of it, really what it is, is that silent films are this kind of magical, fantastical plane where uh, they, they really like comical and cartoonish things can happen. Uh, there's there's another thrill picture he made uh, just shortly after he started making uh, sound films, uh, Lloyd did, mm-hmm. called, I'm going to find it here real quick because i got to look it up again, past it, uh, Feet First is what it's called, and it has this big climactic scene similar to Safety Last, but he's like... Uh, you know, he's up on the side of a building or whatnot, but it's it's not funny. It's terrifying because the yeah. sound inclusion of it and all of the yelling and the you know the sound effects, everything going on, make it feel like a lot more tangible and real. Like the consequences yeah. of him falling is like real legit death, and, and yeah. it's it's terrifying the whole time as opposed to funny. Which I mean, it's is, not pantomime anymore. It's it's too grounded in in reality at that right. Point. And that's that's the magic of silent films. I feel like is that they do feel a lot more, uh, you know, fantastical and less attached to reality, uh, which makes them this very transportive experience. And the, again, a special art form all in their own that I love uh, exploring and watching more of. And Safety Last is just a really great uh, marriage of that because again, in, in, you have that it's very thrilling and you know captivating and enthralling. And it's climax, but it's also hilarious the whole time through with, like, the, the rat crawling up his pant leg or the rope slipping through his hands as he falls, you know, <laughs> towards the ground. Like, like it's a you have this huge gasp, but then a relief of humor at the same time. And it's just so incredibly well-balanced. I can't think of anything that does it quite the same. Would, would you say this is the longest gag you've seen in, well, any comedy for me? I can't think of any that... That goes as long as the clock tower gag here. Yeah, it's just it's a really long extended uh, gag, and there's there's similar ones in other Lloyd films. Like I talked about, uh, there's the chase sequence at the end of uh, Girl Crazy, where uh, which is basically uh, you know uh, just as long. There's a almost as long, maybe half as long bit in Doctor Jack where it's like a poker table setup, and he's like giving all of the uh, 
players, you know, like aces and special cards and whatever. He's going circling around the table and helping them all cheat. And so when mm. they all play together, they're like, hey, you're all cheating. And we're like, well, you're cheating. And, and, and it's a funny bit. It goes on for a long time. But this is probably the longest, certainly the most uh, intricate and well-designed and most uh, enthralling. Uh, it's just a, it's a master class in everything here. You could you, you hold this up on it's like a pinnacle of thrill comedy. I mean, it's exactly what you think of. I think like along the lines of what you're saying there, um, I found a quote from that says, the more trouble you get a man into, the more comedy you get out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, something about building those stakes, he really understood. And he knew how to escalate that tension. I think this is a perfect example of that. Yeah, well, that's that's the idea there, is that comedy is uh, you know such a product of, of tension as well. It's that same kind of thing. And so Safety Last is just this great embodiment of how it can be, how it's both, it's on the precipice of... Uh, terror in the same way is that like you know it's about the a, a joke is in the same way as like you have this setup of something and you you show what could happen and then you know you subvert it in some way and that's mm-hmm. uh, and the difference between comedy and you know uh, horror or tension or whatever in that regard is just the outcome what's what's the difference yeah, that's there true. Uh, well yeah the the difference is the punchline right <laughs> like, yeah yeah it, i mean the comedy and the horror aren't so different from each other, and the setup should be about the same. Right, and that's that's basically is a really good embodiment there. This ending of safety last is that because of the, you know, if you tweak it, if you change the outcome, then it's it's a horrifying, you know, uh, tragedy. Yeah, I mean, usually we laugh because we're anxious, and then we get scared because we're excited. In a way, we're nervous. Yeah. Nervous is a form of excitement and tension. I, w- I would be very excited to see Safety Last in a crowd of people and watch this oh, IMAX as everyone like just lets out giant gasps as he almost falls so many times throughout, but also laughs, you know, and you laugh out loud at so many moments. So I'm still young in my silent film watching, but I feel that this so far would be my leader. It's my favorite of a silent comedy, at least. I I, th- I think I want to claim something similar. It's it's hard for me to pick just one because if I had to pick one from each, I'll pick this one for Harold Lloyd. I'll pick Sherlock Jr. for Keaton, and I'll pick Modern Times. I think for for Champlin, if I can cheat a little. Um, but I I think uh, since we both share love for this one so much, do you think you want to claim Harold Lloyd as our de facto silent comedian for the Twin Geeks? No. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going with Keaton just because I think he's funnier and he matches my style of comedy. Um, okay. Well, I love- once I explore Keaton, I'm gonna take this back in a few weeks anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got plenty to recommend from all of them, of course. I love them all dearly in different ways. Uh, but yeah, Safety Last is just such a, a, a pinnacle of um, uh, consistent comedy. I'm gonna say in in the, in the silent form, like it's just you know a- it, it's it's easier. Let's just claim he's the best one. <laughs> I don't he's, want to have to research and do another podcast. So. He he's the flagship silent comedian for the Twin Geeks uh, until I guess Calvin watches more. Uh, yeah, co- until I take films. off these glasses in a few minutes with these fake lenses. <laughs> I don't even need these. See, that was just a gag the whole podcast to get you that good stuff. <laughs> well, I think that's a as good a place to to leave it with there. Uh, officially, Lloyd is our is our favorite silent comedian for right now. 